The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. There are certain symbols that have been used by most occult elites for millennia. Where do they come from? Why do they work? Who uses them? And why do they use them? The planet Saturn is known as the Dark Sun. Thus, the god Saturn is characterized as being cold, dark, and evil. In ancient Rome, he was the most evil of the gods. Today, millions of people honor Saturn. He is the Hindu Brahma, the Wiccan Pan, the Zen Buddha, the Masonic Gotu, and the Gnostic Demiurge. Ultimately, Saturn is Satan. But in antiquity, he was a deified Noah. He is symbolized by the Megan David, the Black Cube, Santa Claus, and Saturday. The Sabbath is actually the worship of the planet Saturn, Satan. If you keep the Sabbath, then you are carrying on the ancient worship of Cronus, a pagan god. He is worshipped on Saturn's day, which today we call Saturday. The Saturn Death Cult is an investigation into ancient planetary upheavals that heralded the birth and destruction of a fabled golden age. It attempts to trace how, following the demise of this golden age, mankind then degenerated into the obsessive pursuit of wealth and power through the perverted horrors of slavery, child sacrifice, and mass murder rituals. We'll discuss the last great ice age, occult Saturnian symbolism, and the existence of a Saturn cult within the Italian Renaissance elite. Our guest poses a solution for why the planet Saturn is portrayed in mythology as our original sun, where it was said to be fixed in the heavens at Earth's celestial north, and from where it watched over the ancients like the all-seeing eye of God. He'll explain today's frightening sex murder cults and secret societies that are nothing more than a twisted yet deadly legacy of a time when people yearned for the rebirth of the planet Saturn as our original sun and source of life and light. This is linked to the ancient practice of money lending and the consequences of this practice for today's international financial crisis. The conclusion is reached that there is a disturbing occult connection to the planet Saturn and its influence over a perceived worldwide collective march towards fulfilling a terrifying elitist agenda of quote-unquote justifiable global genocide. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it and click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Troy McLaughlin was born in South Africa in 1966 
and was raised in New Zealand from the age of seven. He received a BA degree from studies in Egyptology, medieval history, and Asian and American politics. He worked in the New Zealand television and music industry before moving to Hong Kong in 1993. He worked various media-related jobs, bar work, and traveled extensively in China and Southeast Asia for the next 15 years, currently living in Cambridgeshire, England. He's the author and co-author of three books dealing with aspects of the Electric Universe model and its subset Saturn theory, the Saturn Death Cult, the purple dawn of creation and cosmos in collision with Ted Holden. We'll be focusing on his latest work, titled The Saturn Death Cult, The Link Between Planetary Catastrophes, Ancient Mythology, and Occult Ritual. His website is saturndeathcult.com, and he joins us directly from Cambridgeshire, England. It's a pleasure to have Troy McLaughlin with us on Veritas. Hello, Troy, and thank you for being with us so late where you are. Oh, no, thank you very much for inviting me on, Mel. It's a pleasure to be with you all. My pleasure. Now, let's just begin, because this is such a topic that we've been discussing for a while, but no one has really focused on the actual death cult. Why is the planet Saturn portrayed in mythology as our original sun? Where is, where is it reported to have been fixed in the heavens at Earth's celestial north? Well, um, mythology... Uh, is where um, Saturn theory begins, which is this idea that the original sun um, that uh, Earth had was uh, the planet Saturn. And uh, it's very clear from uh, ancient mythology that uh, the ancients uh, had a very different sky uh, to the ones that, uh, so the skies that we see today in terms of the celestial bodies that were visible to them. And amongst the uh, gods that were most revered was the god Saturn that was clearly and uh, unequivocally uh, identified with the planet Saturn. And uh, virtually in all my um, interviews, Mel, I, I like to uh, quote from um, Bladu Cardona, who's one of the, uh, the big uh, researchers on Saturn theory uh, in the Electric Universe um, uh, you know, fraternity of uh, researchers that they have. And his... Um, his statement is that, quote, the evidence of myth which points to Saturn having once occupied a position above Earth's north polar regions is, is voluminous. There is not a race on Earth that has not preserved at least one account which states as much. According to this evidence, Saturn occupied a central position in the north. It rotated and rotated widely, but other than that, it was immov immovable. Now, of course, this is such a jarring concept to uh, the mainstream idea that the solar system was formed from an accretion disk. The planets are where they are because that's where they were formed uh, today, and they've been that way for at least five billion years. Uh, this concept of a um, of the idea of Saturn itself somehow being stacked above Earth in the celestial north, about where you see the pole star is so outrageous that uh, many of the academics uh, of the last 200 years and you know going back to the early 1800s and on through to uh, 1900 they contrived to uh, take mythology and uh, explain it as the saturn worship as the worship of the sun which sets uh, in the uh, west it rises in the east and it rotates around us and uh, they could not 
conceive of how they could confuse a planet which to the naked eye is a mere pinprick on the outside of the solar system as being this incredibly important uh, life-giving creative force, um, this original sun. But it's there uh, in all of the uh, mythological accounts, and it's not just simply Western mythology, it's world mythology. Comparative mythology shows that the Saturn archetype uh, that is the creative um, god force of uh, ancient times and identified with the planet Saturn. It's there in Japanese, Chinese, it's there in Hindu uh, myth, it's uh, it's there in uh, Mesoamerican myth, uh, very prominently in Mesoamerican uh, mythology, um, of course, in Western mythology. And, uh, and it's, it, it, there are even hints of it in the... In the uh, you know the creation accounts in the uh, major world religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, uh, have reference to uh, the kind of environment that uh, mythology told us uh, the the Earth was in uh, at, at some time in the past. That all, according to mythology, came to a very destructive end, and Saturn was banished to the outside of the solar system where it is today. And uh, uh, things settled down into this new world that we have. But that uh, cataclysmic um, end uh, to the reign of Saturn as uh, Earth's major uh, sun uh, was so odd at, with what scientists with the uniformitarian um, view of the Earth that the, that the um, clue to the past is what we see today. Uh, it's, it's so at odds with that uh, concept that they dismissed Virtually all references to Saturn has been references to the current sun that we have, but the uh, the differences are profound in mythology uh, as to you know the different uh, uh, which is which, and mythology is unequivocal that the planet Saturn was always uh, associated uh, with this first major sun that uh, bestowed a, a kind of a creative uh, beginning for the Earth in the Bible. That creative beginning is often referred, you know, I refer to it as the let there be light moment that uh, is famous in the, uh, the the book of Genesis. But there are very, very similar um, type stories with regard to Saturn in all other mythologies. And, uh, and nowhere uh, how you could, uh, as a scientist, uh, look at the mythological accounts of Saturn with its glorious rings and somehow confuse that. Uh, this immobile north-placed sun with its glorious rings, confuse that with today's sun, uh, is really just a testament to the idea that scientists simply reject what uh, the mythological record uh, gives us and, and refer to it as fanciful tales. Um, and what I should say, Mel, is that as a result of this, most people's association with mythology is exactly that, fantastical. It's almost like the fairy tale. Um, uh, you know, uh, of of the academic world, uh, the fairy tales that we read, and many people are introduced to this mythology through films, through um, television shows, and through popular books. And it is quite the distortion of mythology that has gone on in the last 150 years, because essentially these academics have tried to anthropomorphize to make a uh, the case for a a, um, a a narrative that is easy to understand in the human sense 
with what we've been given from mythology. But if you go back to the original mythological accounts, it's a madhouse. Um, it's almost impossible to understand. And here's the key, unless you consider that uh, mythology is actually the record of very natural events that took place in the celestial realms. Now, let's, uh, by the way, I want to discuss the let there be light quote from Genesis later, because mm -hmm. it has a lot of implications, but define it, the Saturn death cult. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I, I shouldn't laugh because it's a very serious topic as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, I'm often asked uh, by a lot of people who contact me, you know, is it some card carrying club of satanic cannibals? Um, you know, that it is not. Um, Saturn death cult is a term I used to describe a predatory culture uh, that is prevalent amongst the world's social, economic and that comes that has come out of a distortion of a, a, a distorted understanding of mythology. It's an occult culture that uh, uh, has developed over time due to this unfortunate distortion of the myth mythological record. Uh, and it's one that uh, believes that, and this is key uh, for many people to understand the connection I make between planetary catastrophism and it's linked to mythology and what we now have in the world today, because I'm a great believer that, you know, history should be able to inform you in your own life today and in what's going around you today. It shouldn't be just simply a look at, hey, that's what happened in the past. Great. Now we've got these problems to deal with. And so the idea here is um, it, it, it's, uh, it's a culture where uh, the people who are involved in it believe that whatever the creative force behind the universe might be, it is something that can be manipulated into favoring a select group of people at the expense of the greater population. Uh, the people that engage in this uh, kind of cultural distortion of mythology uh, through this understanding are usually people who, are, who have fully embraced the idea that power and its role in society is never a matter of exercising justice. It is simply a matter of having influence for one's own benefit. So for your audience, uh, a death cult is officially defined as a fringe group that glorifies or ob is obsessed with death. In my book, I take that definition a little bit further and identify, I identify it with a group or agenda that requires the pre-planned sacrifice and exploitation, uh, even as far as up to murder, um, of others so that that particular group can achieve its aims and objectives. So what's unique about uh, these groups and agendas, um, the Saturn Death Cult that I'm trying to expose in, in my book, Saturn Death Cult, is that these uh, groups are fundamentally tied to the specific belief and worship of an ancient creator god archetype, and that is the Saturn archetype, what we discussed with regards to this, uh, Saturn's role in mythology. The Saturn archetype, it's a universal mythological archetype. It's deeply embedded in the mythologies of virtually all races and people. And it is a god ar archetype that is capricious. It's highly authoritative and capable of being exploited by people as a symbol to express both good and evil. As I have said, it's, uh, it is an archetype that works on the collective consciousness of just about every nation, tribe, and people. And that is why symbols associated with this archetype are used in virtually all important authority. 
They end up being used as part of things like uh, the money we use, the national symbols that we um, recognize and adhere to, uh, major corporate logos, trademarks, and so on. So this satin death culture that I'm talking about, my argument is, is that it is a legacy of a school of occult thinking that appeals to and exploits the authority inherent in the satin archetype. Either as, you know, they can do it as individuals, groups or movements. Uh, but when they understand the power of this archetype, they exploit the creator God to furnish themselves with the sense of justification and appointing themselves as arbitrators and judges of what is right and wrong. We go back to Eve, uh, the, the original sin of Eve, for example, uh, there's quoted in the Bible that upon eating of the tree, she would uh, be like a God and know that which is right and uh, wrong, uh, good and evil and so on like that. What a lot of people don't understand about that is that she didn't come into consciousness of right and wrong. What she was claiming, which is essentially behind a lot of these esoteric traditions, is that uh, like a God, humans can arrive at that particular uh, stage where they can determine what is right and wrong within creation, within the environment. And, uh, you know, this is what is used to uh, this, this. The Saturnian archetype allows these people to make exactly the same claims that uh, this supposedly justifies their monopolization of the Earth's resources, even the right to life itself. And it's usually done through the extort, you know, extorting control over institutions that define and regulate our laws, our weights and measures, our so- social habits, and, our, and even our abilities to think and reason. Uh, this is the uh, this is the nature of those who worship Saturn. It is that they believe they have the right to determine what is right and wrong for all of us. But it seems that based on what I read in your book, and, and we'll ask you the questions of. Where do they come from? Why do they work at these symbols? Who uses them? And why do they use them? But based on what I read, it seems that Earth was pretty peaceful back then with this purple haze or purple dawn. Uh, it seemed to be kind of a template uh, template uh, uh, seasons and, and weather and climate. Why do they use it in such a negative fashion? Well, um, I guess, you see, I, I wrote Satan Death Cult in the hope uh, that people can develop an understanding as to the origins of these you know, dangerous mythical archetypes, particularly the Saturn creator god archetype and how these archetypes have been are still used to manipulate people for political, economic benefit and select few. So if you read uh, you know, the book in its entirety, it, it basically introduces you to the occult concept of there being two so-called golden ages. And the one that we've mentioned when Saturn ruled as a sun in its own right before being dislodged by the doomsday event uh, occurred in the mythical past. But there is also this idea of a future one that will be brought about if certain agendas have their way. Um, so this Saturn death cult idea uh, that I've written about, it's an introduction to a highly controversial cosmological explanation involving these ancient planetary cataclysms, and particularly those involving Earth and the planet Saturn. Um, I think understanding these explanations demonstrates just how warped and distorted much of today's 
various occult and esoteric traditions have become, uh, particularly, you know, when they the way they use symbols and traditions that are based on good versus evil interpretations of our world. But you see, there are two golden ages inherent in the understanding of these occult and esoteric traditions. And uh, the one in the past that was ruled over by a benef- beneficent uh, will of, you know, the beneficent will of this creator god, Saturn, um, uh, and another which is a hope for future man-made technologically driven golden age, a new era that is said to be, you know, in, in the traditions will be ushered in by the will and manipulation of so-called illumined occult elites who, who see themselves as the natural heirs to the god Saturn's supreme authority over um, creation. And, uh, you know, what we have to remember is that by appealing to planetary cataclysm, um, catastrophism. What we have is a planet that was uh, bathed in a, I would call it a savage, but as you say, um, peaceful in the sense there was no civilization type environment. It suddenly explodes into life with the coming of light from the um, the sun that was Saturn, this, uh, uh, that becomes this um, creator god light um, uh, object in the sky. And for a time, the Earth undergoes a tremendous uh, golden age uh, under Saturn. They they learn how to tell time, fundamental to the beginnings of civilization. They learn the concept of weights and measures, uh, which was not there in the previous existence, which I'm sure we'll get into discuss, discussing um, why it was like that in the so-called Purple Dawn that Hesiod speaks of before the Saturnian golden age. And... Uh, this golden age is destroyed, and uh, it is from uh, that destruction, which uh, you see, I, I suggest about 12,000 years ago that uh, a dwarf star complete with two terrestrial planets in tow was pulled by the, uh, in by the sun, um, and that that brown dwarf star would become eventually this, the, the, the planet Saturn, and Earth, and that's and that planet were captured by the sun, and that destructive element is what led to the aftermath of what we call uh, doomsday. And it is the drastic change uh, from that doomsday event, the destruction of the Golden Age, that has put humanity on a course um, that has uh, allowed certain people to exploit um, others uh, for the benefits of themselves. Uh, I think, um, if, if I can c- continue, Mel, um, I think the single most important aspect of this death cult culture that I write about is their ability to capture the authority to define and police the most important element of, in, in any civilization. And, and, and that is um, a civilization set of weights and measures, which was first created during that first golden age. Uh, and uh, it's one of the most important tools that any civilization can have if it wants to hope to progress in any beneficial way. And of these weights and measures, the right to issue and define money, I argue, is the most important. If you control this aspect of any civilization, you control that civilization. This kind of control can you know, be put to evil use once money is issued as a debt, or in other words, when money is issued as with interest attached to it. This is why usury... It was uh, considered by all major religions to be an abomination, uh, possibly one of the most vile sins against a just society that one can imagine. But if we take um, a 
uh, just using the biblical view, not, not not from a Christian point of view, but just as a as a, as a as something that we can all relate to because we've heard of it. Um, there is something um, that I refer to as the Melchizedekian view, um, which is an old priesthood uh, spoken of in in the Old Testament. And I believe that there are three verses in the Bible that sum up what has happened to our world since the great cataclysm called Doomsday uh, in Western mythology. And these are first, as a consequence of the fall of man, as related in the book of Genesis, um, there, there was that idea, this is after Doomsday, the, the, the fall of Adam and Eve, if you will, um, it will be by the sweat of your brow that you will make the earth yield its fruits. Now, that was something unheard of. Uh, before the event where Eden or, or the Golden Age got shut down. Naturally, there were people uh, who would come to prefer others to sweat for them and making the earth yield its fruits. And so at this time, the crime of non-restitutional chattel slavery is born. And second, we jump further into the Bible much later, uh, Book of Peter, I think it's Peter 1, where we're told that money... Uh, that we are told is, is the root of all evil, not some devil or Satan antichrist creature, but humankind's greed to gain money at any moral expense. Having and controlling money, we know, is the single greatest weapon in the exploitation of others. And then third, um, you have uh, between these two verses um, is a hard and fast law. You shall not make usurious loan of money. And that means any interest in, at all, not just exorbitant, uh, interest, and that's in Exodus 22. And the reason for that is that money is a measure of work done, not simply a means of exchange. And if you control and define this measure, which is what people sought to do in the decades, centuries, millennia after the, the doomsday event that led to a world where uh, there was a lot of uh, resource scarcity, um, it's uh, uh, if you effectively control um, that the, the measure of that is money, you effectively control whoever or whatever economy is governed by this measure. So I would put it to the reader, your audience, um, that the existence of a central banking system that operates on debt-based on a, on a debt-based finance model of money creation, this is the manifestation of everything that those three biblical points that I uh, mentioned before warn against. The central banking model of debt-based finance. I believe is the single greatest crime against humanity ever conceived. And over the last 5,000 years, it has risen and crashed and risen and crashed multiple times, all with the consequence that the favored elite have benefited at the expense of the majority, often with absolute horrendous loss of life. And this is why I believe understanding the natural history that mythology is trying to teach us about planetary catastrophism, it washes away these archetypal symbolic controls uh, that um, that you know uh, malicious uh, intent uh, elites have in trying to uh, control us by using them. Absolutely, I'm so glad that we're discussing this because I've always said that usury is probably one of the biggest tools and weapons against the population. We think of yeah. in the United States, for example, that we abolish slavery. But we have the Federal Reserve since 1913 and the global fiat currency central banking system around the world that keeps the entire world in the uh, slaves with debt. But I, by the way, I said temperate, uh, I said template climate, I meant temperate climate. Why did you switch the term illuminated to illumined oh. and also uh, chronos? 
That's also mm-hmm. another name that's been used about uh, Saturn that denotes time, correct? Yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, to, I'll answer your um, uh, second question. Nos is the Greek name for Saturn. Saturn is the Roman name uh, that has you know, the, the planet is named after, but, uh, you know, various other cultures, um, um, you know, have, uh, have their name for, um, Saturn. The Egyptians have up to four different names that could be identified as Saturn, uh, and so on. But Kronos, yes, it's true. It's, it's linked with time. And that has to do with the events that took place on that, uh, let there be light moment, um, when the earth was bathed in light and, uh, suddenly humans, because of what was going on in the heavens, had the capacity to be able to measure time. Time is the first measure. All the other measures come from the ability to um, uh, calculate time. Once you have time, you can begin civilization. Prior to that, without any reference to be able to calculate time in in terms of what's going on in the celestial realms, which is what was happening during the, um, uh, the Purple Dawn era, the the uh, purple dawn of creation, this um, uh, strange time before the golden age. Uh, but yes, uh, when Saturn uh, burst forth in light, um, and you know we have the cosmology that tells us how that happened, uh, uh, which is a very controversial cosmology, but that tells us uh, how this could have taken place, what, what what mythology is actually describing to us. But time is associated with Saturn as a result of that. Uh, as far as changing illuminated to uh, illumined, uh, purely grammatical. An illuminated person is somebody bathed in light. An illumined person is somebody who is enlightened. Wisdom. And uh, uh, yes, I, I, I simply made uh, that mistake um, uh, at the time and uh, it, it got past me uh, with my first edition, which I corrected in the second edition. That's fine. I thought it had a different connotation. But then it, again, where do these signs come from? Why do they work? Who uses them, and why do they use them? Right. Um, well, okay. So that you know, the, this is um, the great uh, I, identifying marks of the Saturn death, you know cult culture that I'm talking about is the usance of of these uh, potent symbols, the symbolism that is, you know, based deeply on subconscious yet very powerful archetypes to create their social mechanisms and institutions. Um, you know, it's, it's, while the outward expression of much of these um, attempts at population control by using symbols uh, is there and, um, you know, in, in terms of uh, ideologies that have been created like feudalism, fascism, socialism, com- communism, even capitalism for that matter. Um, you know, the hidden knowledge and the use of symbols and archetype is what is used to supposedly, as I pointed out before, it's used there to to give justification for that self-appointed status, uh, that sense of entitlement to that some elites, you know, have. Um, it's it's uh, why you often find common ground in the types of symbols employed by supposedly differing ideologies uh, where, when you know what to look. I mean, the, the hammer and sickle, uh, you know, uh, that's a direct reference to um, uh, Saturn's scythe. Uh, you know, so communism has that. Um, the star inside the crescent in Islam uh, uh, couldn't be more Saturnian if you tried. Uh, the halo of Christianity behind the heads of um, Christian saints and um, and depictions of Mary and Jesus and so on is also very Saturnian, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, a lot of Saturnian symbolism uh, involved in that. Now, the reason that these are used, and we, we go to a guy called Carl Jung, who was a contemporary of Sigmund Freud, who looked into the psychology of uh, and the psyche of, um, of, of people. And he came up with this idea of archetypes that have been um, going on about. And an archetype can trigger something in people uh, when a symbol is used, um, you know, whether it's visual or even it can be verbal, it can be a written symbol, it can be anything that triggers that archetype. And those archetypes are deeply embedded in the uh, collective psyche of people. A lot of people used to call it sort of race memory, uh, that kind of a concept. But we all have it. And it, it, it's a funny thing. It's, it's one thing that really unites the peoples of the world. Uh, we all have the same triggers with these major archetypes that are based on, on mythological figures and concepts. And what Saturn theory people, you know, starting with Velikovsky started it, uh, people have moved on from him like Cardona, Dave Talbot and so on. Uh, um, uh, Wells Thornhill, these these guys that are right at the forefront of this study, they point to the absolutely stupefying effect that a planet the size of Saturn would have had on Earth's inhabitants if it were as close as mythology tells us it was. And if the destructive uh, um, episodes that took place in ancient mythology are anything to go by. Uh, we, in the last two and a half to three thousand years, have we've we've had it we've had it easy compared to what some of these people uh, had in past times. Truly terrifying events that most of us would consider almost extinction level events. And in fact, many extinctions can be explained by uh, the cosmology that Saturn theory puts forward with regards to what's going going on with uh, um, mythology's record of these catastrophic events. But the fact is, is that so great were these cataclysms that they just burned into the psycho, uh, the psyche of the, the collective psyche of all peoples of the earth. And that's why we are so easy to manipulate in terms of this fear of another doomsday turning up, uh, another doomsday uh, been enacted. And, and this is where we get into the whole idea of this uh, um, occult elite. We don't have the planetary cat catastrophes uh, scaring us now, but in a weird way, they believe that as the old golden age ended with a catastrophe, so a new golden age that they will control uh, will uh, be brought about by a global catastrophe, uh, which they I believe, intend to engineer. Very important. Now, when we see the OCNI on the back of a US dollar bill, and a lot of people look at that and think, why, first of all, why is the, looks like a capstone, right? If you look at it, why is it separate sure. from the rest of the pyramid? Are we looking at Saturn mm. too, when we look at that OCNI? And how, how did you uh, and the ancient ones come to that conclusion? Well, okay, so you know the the, the all-seeing eye is a variation. You know, you go you go back to the eye of Horus in Egyptian culture, um, and this uh, association uh, with the Saturn archetype of being able to look down on the Earth, um, you know, of humanity and so on. Um, you know, it, it, beneficially to start off, you've got to remember the Golden Age was a great time. 
This was a time when, you know, murder, all this sort of stuff was hardly, uh, if it was even known about. Uh, people, their biggest risk was if they were exploring and setting the boundaries using their new concepts of weights and measures, you know, they could drown in the sea, they could, you know, just have accidents and so on. But they had no fear of their fellow uh, human being and the um, the presence of uh, Saturn both as a as a glowing planet, um, a sun in its own right, um, looking down on the Earth, sort of gave that sense of 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 um, of this creative uh, force um, having this uh, um, watchful eye over everybody, and everybody felt good about that. Now. Uh, once we get into, and I'm sure we probably will discuss this, the co cosmology, but there is an important element about the cosmology that uh, to explain what mythology uh, is telling us that the ancients saw in these ancient days. And we've all heard about Jacob's um, uh, ladder to heaven. We've heard about the tree um, of life that stretches up uh, to the heavens. We've heard um, the stairway. Yeah, you know, it is a Led Zeppelin song that uh, that uh, riffs on that sort of um, you know uh, archaic idea. Now, what happened uh, as a result of Saturn sitting up in the north, where the uh, North Star sits today, is an electrical current existed between Earth and Earth's North Pole and Saturn's Southern Pole, and the current would glow arc or go invisible occasionally. But when it glowed, it uh, produced a an amazing effect. It was as if it was a road up to where this beneficial, life-giving light had first erupted from at the beginning of the Golden Age. And as a result of that, um, uh, that connection, uh, humans believe that this was, you know, basically a sign of a road to the abode of God or the gods, depending on which mythology uh, you want to go with. Uh, and the um, this is why uh, a pyramid ends up under the watchful eye um, of the all-seeing eye on the dollar note. The pyramid is that, that sort of building, that step towards that tapering um, uh, climb up to the abode of the gods. And what I will point out to many people is that um, it is a strange thing, uh, not to us who um, who know this sort of Saturn theory thing uh, that we're talking about, but virtually every major ancient temple uh, that is supposedly uh, geared towards sun worship uh, is somehow oriented on a north-south uh, configuration and not an east-west uh, configuration, which you would expect. So to take the most famous uh, temple that people, you know, temple or, or, or uh, tomb, as some people like to call it, but one that is associated almost entirely by academia with sun worship, and that is the Great Pyramid uh, of Egypt. The Great Pyramid of Egypt is the most um, perfectly celestially aligned with north and uh, north celestial alignment building on the planet more so than the observatory at uh, at uh, Greenwich uh, here in London um, which is the second most and uh, this the the alignment is so perfect that I have to say that if the concept of uh, continental drift and so on was true it would have moved out of alignment by now and it never does. Um, it's been in that alignment for um, 
uh, for as long as people have written about the uh, um, about, about the pyramid, Herodotus, these kinds of guys, and uh, it gives you a clue that the original Great Pyramid was geared towards this idea of that sat up in that North Celestial uh, realm, and so do all the other um, temples. The Mesoamerican pyramids, they're oriented that way. Um, there's very, very few. Most of them are recent temples, but there are very, very few temples that are not oriented on some kind of north-south um, alignment and uh, with celestial north. And it's not with uh, magnetic north or anything, but with the pole star. And, uh, you know, even in, in, in the Hindu religion, the the um, uh, Indus River, um, is it, sorry, yeah. Have I got that right? The Indus River? Yes. Yeah, I think you did, yeah. Um, yeah, the Indus River. The the holiest part of the Indus River is the part of the river that runs north to south. All right, uh, and and so you have this you have this tremendous um, uh, how can I say it? Uh, you know, weight of the evidence of the temples themselves that they were looking up to this uh, area in the heavens as opposed to you know east to west uh, sun worship um, at that time, and pyramids become the uh, uh, the key structure to mimic what they were seeing um, in terms of this glowing electrical current that uh, connected uh, Saturn with Earth at that time. You talk about the lo the so-called lost continents of Atlantis and, and Lemuria. Do you oh, think yeah. this is just a theory, or did these two continents actually exist at one point? Yes. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I couldn't say... You know, Atlantis is in many respects associated with the abode of the gods, but the idea that humans during the Golden Age attempted to um, mimic uh, what they, you know, the rings of uh, Saturn, the rings of, um, uh, you know, of, of the abode of, you know, we, we talk about the Lord of the, the Rings, you know, in, in, in later novels and things like that. Um, but these rings were a feature of, for instance, Atlantis and so on. Um, yes, I... I do believe in the golden age that um, there were societies that have been associated as Plato did uh, associated Atlantis with a, an area where people lived and that these were subsumed by giant floods. And that is because the doomsday event was effectively a massive flooding catastrophe that raised the levels of the world's oceans dramatically uh, at the time. Uh, it's hinted at uh, in um, in Genesis, but it's certainly a feature that Doomsday, uh, a feature of mythology that Doomsday is associated with um, with extreme flooding, and that flooding came from the sky. Uh, in the book, um, I would say we, once we get to the cosmology, this can be explained. But in the book, uh, the theory that um, that I subscribe to is that. Um, a large body of water was ejected by Saturn when it first uh, erupted at the beginning of the Golden Age, uh, went Nova-like after its capture, its brush with the sun's um, heliosphere. And that water, a lot of it escaped out into space. And as the Earth and Saturn eventually circled around to full capture, uh, the Earth collided with that giant cloud of water. It drenched the surface of the Earth and... Uh, um, we, uh, you know, we have these myths about these uh, places that get uh, taken out by uh, floods. I uh, was brought up in New Zealand. New Zealand um, is a the tops of a recognised continent now called Zealandia. 
that would have been uh, you know, very much uh, above sea level uh, prior to these events that I'm talking about. Um, but that gives you an idea. In fact, it was uh, the Zealandian continent was almost as big as Australia, its neighbor. And uh, the fact that most of that is now underwater with only the tops of uh, that continent poking through as islands, the New Zealand islands being the most prominent, uh, it gives you an idea of just how much water was dumped onto the earth according to this theory uh, that, uh, uh, that I put forward regarding the doomsday event. I'm trying to envision this. I'm trying to envision the what is currently the North Pole or that area. had mm. It was wider. I read something interesting in your book, of course. Quote, mm. Saturn's gravitational pull raised a static tidal bubble of water at the North Pole, unquote. End quote. Right. Does that mean that after Saturn was not exerting its energy on Earth, those waters flooded the northern hemisphere of the plane? I mean, the Earth, mm -hmm. a deluge? Totally. Um We subscribe um, in the book and people in, in, um, in Saturn Theory, we subscribe to what's called the Electric Universe Model, where we reject a gravity-only driven you know, universe and formation of the solar system. And part of that is that gravity is an electrostatic phenomenon. It's not just simply a function of mass and, uh, uh, and volume and so on. It's, uh, it's driven as much by electrical properties. And when you have a connecting electrical current called a Birkeland current discovered by a guy called Christian Birkeland over, over a hundred years ago, uh, you know, this was, these are the currents, the electrical currents that connect us now with the sun. But at the time, uh, in the relationship with Saturn, it, these currents connected us with Saturn, and they produced a different type of um, gravity. So, um, you know, we, we, we can go into the idea that um, prior to Earth's capture by the sun along with Saturn, Earth had a much lesser gravity. And as a result of the polar alignment that had Saturn, meaning axial alignment, we would like a string of pearls, if you can imagine Saturn, Mars, well, Saturn, Venus, Mars at that time, uh, dangling with Earth at the bottom, dangling below. They're all spinning uh, in axial alignment with each other. But that current is uh, creating a, um, an, a, a gravitational environment that had the capacity to raise the body of water that we call the Arctic Ocean. And because of Saturn's influence at that time, especially as a sun in its own right, The paradise on Earth at that time was the Arctic Circle. Um, every, you know, the, 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 it was. Um, I discuss in the book how the Ice Age was a ring of uh, glaciers and ice sheets um, that was below the the Arctic Circle, and inside the Arctic Circle was a, a, a pretty much a temperate, almost subtropical environment with uh, plenty of fauna, plenty of. Uh, 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 you know, animals, uh, Neanderthals uh, were, were uh, a species that were uh, very much a part of that environment. And they bathed in the light of Saturn. But when Saturn's electrical properties, uh, when its electrical field was disrupted by the sun, that gravitational relationship was completely disrupted. And as a result of that, this, um, this bubble of water that I'm talking about now, in the In the book, I give a not-to-scale uh, description uh, diagram of that bubble of water. But this bubble of water probably was at the very most six feet high. Uh, but it was vast. Uh, you know, it covered the entire uh, – where you see the ice cap today. 
And once that bubble of water was released, yes, you get an onrushing of um, of a, a you know t- a tidal wave effect that hits the coastlines of what is northern Russia, um, northern uh, Alaska, Canada, northern Greenland, these places. And it's a very unique disaster because um, a lot of people don't realize that the Arctic Ocean, if it has always been as it is this cold wasteland where very little really survives, for some reason, it's also the muckiest from a um, biological point of view. Uh, it, it, it has so much uh, debris in its waters, uh, um, you know, sloshing around in there that nobody can explain where all this debris came from unless you have a situation where the the countries that I, dis, uh, that I spoke about before ringed the Arctic uh, uh, Ocean as they do today, but were not icy wastelands, but were in fact uh, trop- subtropical paradises. And when you get the tsunami of water from this bubble, it hits these coasts, it or goes inland for miles, and then it washes back, back into the ocean, and takes with it so much of the stuff that is there uh, back into the ocean that that is what we claim accounts for all of the uh, um, the material that you now find. It's, it's, it's the muckiest ocean on the planet, and it shouldn't be, uh, but it is. Um, and uh, that's our explanation for why that is the case. It's also an explanation um, that I put forward uh, for the extinction of the mammoths. A lot of people don't realize that uh, most of the mammoths, um, uh, aside from the, d- the debate, what the hell were they eating um, up there? We all know what elephants go through uh, and, um, you know, pachyderm species, which is what the mammoths are a part of. We were given the ridiculous idea that they, they use their tusks none of which show any indication of ever being used for digging, but supposedly they used to dig up moss and live on that um, and so on. But we know that their stomach contents have shown that they have subtropical uh, um, flora uh, foods um, that have been captured uh, in their first stomachs. Remember, the pachyderms have two stomachs. They have a storage stomach and then a digestive stomach. And uh, the, the curious thing about them is that they're, the ones that they find that are frozen in place now, uh, we all find that they died of asphyxiation. Uh, they didn't die of drowning. They did not um, die of uh, exposure or hunger, uh, certainly not with, uh, in terms of what their stomachs reveal to us. And so what this um, leads uh, Saturn theory to believe happened, and this is not just mammoth, this is crustaceans up in Alaska and lots of different um, uh, flora and fauna show this as a as a factor. When the electrical current between the uh, north of Earth and, and, the, and the south of Saturn was disrupted, you got what was called a dielectric, dielectric um, breakdown, and effectively there was a flash of electrical static um, arcing that went on in the atmosphere. Now, it's not the same thing, but the effect is the same. You know what a fuel bomb is, and you know how a fuel bomb operates. It, it basically uh, the, the 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 fuel is released out as a as a mist. It's then ignited and it sucks all the oxygen. And if you're in the vicinity of that bomb, uh, your your lungs get literally sucked out of your he- uh, out of your body, and uh, you know you die. 
Well, this is what the um, this is what happened to the mammoths. They had a uh, an asphyxiation event uh, that left them uh, without air, and we put that down to the um, uh, the arcing effect, the electrical uh, storm uh, on um, uh, disrupted uh, electrical current, having created that situation in the Arctic Circle at the time, the mammoths all seemed to die out once and, you know, all together at the same time. I don't know why the name Lake Titicaca comes to mind. We're not discussing it at all. It's in the Southern Hemisphere. But when I think of that being the the largest lake in South America, the, the highest lake in the world, it's also, I believe it has salt water, or at least it has a lot of fauna and living creatures that are supposed to be in, in oceans, not up there. Do you think this has something to yeah. do with what happened? Uh, most definitely. The forming of the Earth, um, rather than the uh, uh, slow, um, you know, sort of uniformitarian, gradual erosion, wind, rain, that sort of uh, concept, the electric universe subscribes mainly to the idea that um, electrical strikes, uh, giant what you would call thunderbolts, particularly when you get celestial bodies of differing uh, electrical properties coming into contact with each other, that they will they, they there will be these lightning events, these electric bolts that will literally carve the earth, that will raise parts of the earth, um, blister-like, um, move stuff up. And, you know, literally in the blink of an eye, this kind of stuff can happen. And, you know, we're not we're not talking, um, you know, years and uh, centuries for this kind of uh, thing to take place. What we're talking about is the initial upsurge and that can take place in as little as a day, uh, if not um, an hour, if not minutes. Um, the Grand Canyon is a popular one for uh, many uni uh, electric universe people uh, explaining where a major scouring electric strike took place. Um, the raising of uh, that part of the world, Titikahu, um, and, and such, is also explained that way. Mountain building is explained in the electric universe model as this. Uh, when we look at the uh, planet Mars, which in mythology was the, the hero archetype who battled, uh, you know, many different um, uh, battles with uh, uh, other planets, it was left with a giant scar on its face. And uh, that, um, gee, I always forget how to pronounce it, uh, Valus Marinus, I think I can't, um, Marianus, I can't, I always get it confused with the um, channel uh, off the Philippines. But there's this giant, massive um, uh, uh, canyon that dwarfs the Grand Canyon on Mars. Uh, and for some reason, scientists are convinced that water created water erosion. Uh, but these are all telltale signs of seriously massive electrical strikes that when two celestial bodies get too close to each other and an electric um, uh, event takes place. Uh, it's, it's like a giant, and this is the strength of the electric universe model, it's the scalability of what can happen. But think of it as a giant um, uh, example of when you shuffled across to uh, the metal of a radiator, you know, across in your socks on the carpet, and you get that uh, static shock yeah. just before you touch the, uh, the metal. Now extrapolate that to planetary scales, and that's what's going on. Um, and those strikes uh, are some of the uh, greatest um, 
how can you say they're the, you know sculpting uh, um, events in terms of uh, how our planet is sculpted uh, today. When you were discussing gravity, I'm thinking of electrostatic energy, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking when you take a you know piece of clothing or, or a sock for, out of a, a dryer and it sticks on your mm -hmm. chest, right? Could this yeah. be what happened in the past? The less gravity we had was because the electrostatic phenomena was not as powerful as it is now. Yes. Um The the guys who sort of uh, are big on this, like people people like Wolfram Hill, um, uh, who you know go into the actual mechanics, the electrical mechanics of of how this could happen, they describe the Earth as basically a giant electrete, um, which is you know makes a kind of a magnet and such. And wherever you have magnetism, you have had to have there had to have been electrical current. You can't create magnetism um, without electrical current. And uh, so when you have a relationship between two electrical bodies, they um, where they uh, equalize with each other, that thing we call gravity is different uh, to those bodies than it would be if they found other bodies to have a relationship with through, you know, capture or, or, or whatever. So in the electric universe, gravity is not a constant. Uh, the, the speed of light is not a constant. These things are false uh, concepts as far as um, uh, as far as the electric universe model goes. So gravity is a variable uh, 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 phenomenon that is governed by whatever body uh, um, you know the planet you're on is is uh, is having a relationship to. And if that if that body has a vastly more uh, positive electrical field, um, it will have a certain uh, gravitational relationship. But if it comes into contact with a body that's even greater, that relationship uh, will change. Um, in fact, the greater the host body, if you call it that way, in terms of this idea of captured planets, moving from, from Saturn to the Sun, uh, made our gravity heavier. And... I've written a book called Cosmos and Collision with a um, with a co-author called um, uh, Ted Holden, and he was the guy who did a lot of the uh, studies um, into uh, the what he called the impossible dinosaurs. How a the dinosaurs that we're digging up these vast land-based creatures uh, they simply could not survive uh, in in terms of the gravity that we have today. When a whale washes up on the beach, it eventually suffocates itself by collapsing under its own weight. It can't support the weight unless it's in a buoyant environment uh, like the ocean. Well, these land-based um, uh, dinosaur creatures, uh, they would have been in extreme distress in today's environment. Now, what that means is that the, the, the obvious uh, um, conclusion that we come to is that at the time when dinosaurs ruled, ruled, uh, ruled the Earth and at the time when very large mammals ruled the Earth, these were lighter gravitational environments to the one that we have today. And each uh, period or extinction event um, that changed from the really large creatures to ones that aren't quite so large to creatures that are even smaller until we get to the creatures of today um, uh, in the environment, uh, What we postulate is the idea that these extinct, extinct, extinction events 
are generated by changes in the electrical relationship that Earth had with Saturn, with the final doomsday event where Earth was captured by the Sun and Saturn was also captured by the Sun, where our gravitational uh, field changed to the one that we have now. Um, and, you know, it could change again if something happened to the Sun, electrically speaking. Our gravitational environment could change again. But that's our explanation for the this progressive you know, the larger the creatures in the past, they die off, and each new, uh, you know, uh, generation, I suppose, for want of a better term, of creature, they're, they're, they're next size down, if you know what I mean, indicating that gravity got less, uh, got heavier and heavier and heavier until we reach the stage that we are at uh, today. I really want to understand this more during part two, because we have to take a one and only break. What happened with that? Let's call it, can we call it a dwarf star, a sun? And then the new sun came along. And what I'm about to say, I'll do it before the break and we'll get your reaction on the other side. What I'm about to say may offend some Christians and I'm one of them, but I've researched astrotheology. And when I look at Da Vinci's Last Supper, I see the 12 disciples and Jesus, but you can also see them as each month, the seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall, in cluster into threes. And then Jesus as the sun, S-O-N and S-U-N. Throughout this talk, we're discussing the new sun. Could this sun be equated with the birth of Jesus and a new age? But I'll get your answer on the other side. How can people buy the book and learn more about your work, Troy? Well, they can go to satandeathcult.com. I uh, have the book uh, prominently displayed. It's available on Amazon only as a Kindle. Um, and uh, that's the best, uh, what's the only way that one can get hold of that. But uh, uh, satandeathcult.com also gives you a pretty good introduction to what the book is going to offer you. So uh, swing by and see what you think. Great. I'm here with Troy McLaughlin. So much more when we just come back. This is Mel Hoselrich, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.